Well, good morning. Before I begin, uh, we want to make just a quick note. Um, for those of you who listen uh, to our podcast when we put the sermons up, uh, you may have noticed the last couple of weeks, uh, we've had some audio issues, a couple of skips here and there. Um, we switched out the USB last week thinking that might be the problem, and it still had some issues last week. Uh, but we uh, updated the firmware on the motherboard, not motherboard, the soundboard. Is there a motherboard in the soundboard? No, no, no. Uh, update the firmware in the soundboard. So we believe we fixed the problem. So we appreciate your patience through that. Um, and yeah, just know that we will continue to be posting them up there. So if, you, if there are any issues or anything like that, feel free to bring those to our attention. But yeah, so thank you for your patience on that. Well, today we're going to continue our study through Galatians. Um, we're going to go through that passage that uh, Christian just read for us. So if you haven't already... Uh, please open your Bibles to that passage of Scripture. Uh, we're getting near the end of Galatians, as you guys have noticed. I hope and pray that you have um, benefited and you have drawn from as much about uh, from this passage as I have. Um, I think it's been an amazing uh, series uh, that we have been studying as we study through the book of Galatians. Um, it has been a lot of fun to preach several messages here um, and hear Daniel and Will as well. Um, regularly. So uh, I really hope and pray that this has been um, a powerful um, study for you for you um, on our Sunday mornings here. As always, as we look at this passage, it's really important um, that we keep in context what Paul has been getting at throughout his book of Galatians. Keep in mind why he wrote this book. He wrote this book to address some concerns he saw in Galatia when he saw when he heard about these reports of these men who had come to the Galatian churches and basically persuaded them to believe a different gospel, basically persuaded them to believe that they somehow had to earn their salvation. And he writes this letter full of fire, full of passion, anger. All these emotions come out of Paul's letter as you read the book of Galatians. And he's fired up wanting to tell the church, basically, there is only one gospel, that salvation only comes through Christ alone, in faith alone, by grace alone. That is the only way we can be saved. It is not about something you earn. And so we read that, and we've been studying that as we've looked through all these different chapters and sections. We see Paul emphasizing that directly. We see him teaching it from the Old Testament. We see him talk about what that means then to have freedom in Christ and to be able to live by the Spirit because we now have died to the flesh. Last week, Daniel's, Daniel's section that he preached on talked about this, basically this comparison between what it looks like to live by the flesh, to try to be doing stuff on your own and living by um, the law and trying to be self-justified, what that really ends up just resulting in versus what it looks like and means to be living by the Spirit when you die to yourself. In fact, that one of the last passages, one of the last verses that in that section last week even says, and those who belong in Christ Jesus, verse 24, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. To live by the Spirit means to basically put to death your own flesh, your own passions, your own desires. And then he ended it saying, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. 
And then we get to this section. So it's really important to keep all this context in mind when we're studying. One of the re- this is one of the main reasons, by the way, why when we, you hear the majority of our sermons, the majority of our studies that we do on Sunday gatherings here, we really believe in going verse by verse through the different books of the Bible that we might be studying. All right, because we think it's a really important tool that when you're trying to read scripture on your own, that when you're trying to um, glean from scripture, learn what the Holy Spirit might have to tell you is to keep in mind the context of what is being said. To not just take and cut in pieces. Because honestly, this passage that we're studying today is one that people love to just take out different verses and just run with them into their own little mini sermons or their own little different mini meanings. And while that's not necessarily an awful, horrible thing, it, gets, it can easily get you away from what Paul is really trying to get at in this passage. And, can, and you can kind of almost miss the depth of what Paul is trying to get at in this passage. And also notice that we've, we've been going through these five questions. The reason why we've been giving these five questions and been going through them in sermons, it's very purposeful. We are all about equipping one another. And our, we believe our Sunday gatherings are a time to equip the body of Christ, to equip you in terms of being able to study Scripture on your own on a regular basis, being able to glean from Scripture what it is God might be teaching you. So we've given you these five questions, not that these are questions that we've come up with by any means, that we think ourselves so smart, but these are questions that we've found that have helped us and that we want to use in order for you to be able to help yourselves as you study scripture and be asking yourself consistently, what does the text say? What does the text mean? How do we, how do we naturally resist it? How is Jesus the hero? And finally, how does that empower us to live it out? So as we dive in today, asking what does this text say? We're going to start with verse 26. Right away, he says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, caring, uh, envying one another. Now, again, like I said, it's very easy. You can just cut that verse out and just be like, well, that seems pretty straightforward. All right. Paul is just saying, don't be conceited. Don't be full of yourself. Don't provoke one another. Don't envy one another. But what I think is important to keep in mind is what he's just been getting at. What has Paul just been saying? All right, it's important to keep this in mind, keep this in the context of this greater message that he's been saying, which is basically this comparison between what is living by the flesh look like versus what is living by the spirit look like. Okay, so essentially what he's getting at is if you are living by the flesh, by the law, if you're trying to self-justify yourself, this is what's going to probably happen. So he's saying, don't be like this. Don't do these things because here's what's going to happen. You're going to end up becoming either conceited and full of yourself because you suddenly think yourself so much better than other people. You start looking at yourself and the things that you're accomplishing because you're trying to self-justify yourself. You're trying to follow all the rules that you think is part of church and part of, the, part of what uh, is supposed to be, you know, what religion looks like. And you become full of yourself as you notice all the people around you not doing that good of a job. Or you start provoking one another, meaning like you start pushing people and being like, huh, you got to do way better than that. You, you, you call yourself a Christian, but look at what I'm doing over here, and like, you're not even doing this. Or you can be the other way, and you can start envying one another because you start looking at other people and be like, whoa, I wish I was like that person. They got it together. They got the nice little family. Their family looks all like in order every morning. Like, they got it all together. They have a nice house. You know, they're just like, everything looks so great about their lives. And I'm over here struggling every single day, trying to, like, live this out, trying to follow all the rules. 
And when we try to self-justify ourselves, when we try to live a life that is full of chasing after something that we think we have to obtain on our own, these are some of the traps we can fall into. Being conceited, provoking other people, or envying other people. Then Paul goes from there, verse 1 of chapter 6, and it's really important to remember when the Galatians would have first read this letter, there's no chapters and there's no verses, okay? So it's not like they would have read this in different sections. It's not like they would have took a break and pause. Okay, we just finished chapter five. Let's take a 10-minute recess and come back and keep reading. All right? It was one letter. They would have read it together, meaning everything would have fit and flowed together. So from there, verse one, he says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgressions, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So he goes from talking about not provoking one another, don't be conceited, don't envy one another. And then he transfers that and switches, almost switches gears a little bit and says, but if anyone's caught any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore him. So it's almost like Paul wants to make a point, okay, I'm not saying ignore people in their transgressions. Because it's very easy to go from like the first, the verse before where Paul's like, hey, don't be conceited, don't provoke one another, be like, all right, I'll just let them be them and I'll let me be me. He's like, well, that's not exactly what I'm saying either. And what he says, instead, he gives this charge. And it's really important we understand what this verse is saying, again, in context, because again, this is one that people love to cut and paste and just kind of run off with in their different ways. Got to read the whole thing. First, he says, you who are spiritual, it's really understand, really understand what he's saying. He's not saying just any old person. Those people who are actually living by the Spirit. Those people who are following the Holy Spirit, not just trying to be something, not just trying to be religious, not just trying to obtain their own personal salvation, but those who are living by the Spirit, those who recognize their need for Jesus, those who have surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ, and are allowing the Holy Spirit to live through them. For you people, he says, restore him or her, the person who's caught in the transgression, the sin, in a spirit of gentleness. Now what has tended to happen over the course of time is people will look at that passage, restore him in gentleness, in a spirit of gentleness, and they love to overemphasize one of those two things. And we really got to understand that the idea of restoration and gentleness, you, to fully understand what Paul's saying, you have to understand the combination of the both. And if you just overemphasize one or the other, you just totally lose the purpose of what Paul is getting at here. And what has happened historically is I've seen, you, you look at the history of the church, one of these is always overly getting emphasized over the other. In some cases, you have churches that are all about restoration, meaning they're all about correcting anything wrong, that they almost get into the habit of, of making people pay penance for what they've done. They, like we see this in the history of the church. Like they, people would have to do all these things. They would be persecuted. They would almost be like shamed and they would be like outcasted until they corrected their behavior. Because it was all about getting them in line, making them fall in line with what the church was supposed to be about. But then you have the other side, which the other side is honestly the, what I see a lot of churches doing today, which is they overemphasize gentleness, meaning because we live in a culture that's so full of, like, uh, of an emphasis on accepting all, tolerating all, that you almost feel really cautious about letting anybody know that they're doing something wrong. 
and you have such an attitude of like gentleness, whatever, that you're almost kind of like, hey, maybe you shouldn't do that, da, 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 but like you're not actually like carrying it out and helping them get back in line with what the Holy Spirit would want. So we got to know what both these things mean. We got to understand how they both work together because restoration, true restoration, you, you really have to understand that it's just not referring to the idea of stop doing the sinful act. I want you to think if you're, I don't know if any of you, I'm not personally, but if any of you are really into the idea of like, like old cars, like, you know, really fancy cars and people are like restoring them, right? Like they, they, they have these restoration processes. I've seen shows on it, all right? Imagine someone who's really into restoring an old car. They get an old, honestly, like I couldn't even tell you a good car. Like, I'm, like you show me a picture, you show me a picture of an old car, I have like a 2% chance of getting right what kind of car that is, all right? I'm just going to be honest with you guys, all right? But imagine somebody buying an old car that they want to restore. And they, 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 have a whole, they have a whole group of friends that are all about, they're in that, those, you know, they go to car shows all the time. They're all about restoring old cars. And so they get the car and it's just a mess. You know, it's almost pretty much been in a dump somewhere. You know, they change out, they rebuild the engine. They get it all spanking shanty new, all the internal guts, combustion, all that stuff's working as it originally should have. They even change out the interior stuff. They make, you know, original leather, all that stuff's good. Now, the outside's been rusted and just kind of almost breaking and falling apart, but they decide to leave that be. And then they go to a car show and they say, look, I restored this car. Is any of those car nuts going to look at that rusted old beat up thing and be like, yeah, you fully restored that car? (laughs) Nobody's going to believe that. They're not going to think that way. That's not what they see is what restoration means. Restoration is a total process. And to understand restoration in this context for someone who stepped out of line, someone who's been basically caught in transgression, meaning they're living a sinful life, we have to look at it as a total process, meaning we have to go back to the roots of what responding to the gospel even means, which means recognize, helping somebody recognize their brokenness, helping someone recognize their need for Jesus, helping them to see what Jesus has accomplished for them, helping them to ask for forgiveness, helping them to start the path of repentance, which means turn their eyes away from their sin and focus on Jesus only and following in line, walking those steps, following a life that the Holy Spirit would have them lead, and even having to pay what's called restitution to any that they would have wronged, meaning making up for what they've done, helping them walk this full path of restoration. That's what restoration looks like. And to short it up by just saying, oh, just please stop doing that. It's totally missing the point of what restoration is all about. But again, Paul, so, so Paul makes that point of restoration. He says, in a spirit of gentleness. So yes, there is a sense, and especially when we take in context what he just said in the passage before, and what he says at the end, which says, keep watch on yourself lest you to be tempted, basically give, emphasizing this idea of making sure that as we're trying to walk somebody through this full path of restoration, don't sell it short, but making sure we're doing it constantly, reflecting on our heart. Okay, am I doing this out of love for this person? Am I doing this because the Holy Spirit is moving me and challenging me to do this? Or am I doing it because it kind of makes me feel good because they need me? And I'm so much better than they are. It's making us, it's requiring us to constantly be reflecting on our own spirit and why we're doing this. Doesn't mean 
be okay with them not completing the work. It doesn't mean to accept them even if they just keep messing it up. But it means out of love, continue to restore them, continue through the whole process of restoration and what that looks like. From there, Paul says in verse two, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So he goes from the idea of restoring someone to also with another person bearing one another's burdens. This literally means kind of like the idea of shoulder to shoulder bearing a load. Imagine if you're lifting something big and heavy, all right, you can put it all on your own shoulders and probably like fall down and crush. But if you have somebody standing right next to you bearing another person's shoulder, it becomes a lot easier because you're not bearing the full weight anymore. That's what this idea is, bearing someone's burdens, helping them, standing shoulder by shoulder, walking with them with whatever it is that they're dealing with. This can be, again, referencing something like from the first verse with something they're trying to overcome, a struggle that they're having, or just something suffering that they're enduring and having. And he says, by doing so, you so fulfill the law of Christ. And with the law of Christ, we have to go back to what Paul said earlier. Chapter five, verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What does he mean by the law of Christ? He's not talking about the law of Moses. He's not talking about what the Judaizers were trying to convince the Galatians that they had to do, which is follow all the little rituals and everything like that. No, he's saying Christ fulfilled that law. And now the law clearly is just summarized in this one thing, that you shall love the neighbor as yourself. Jesus himself said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Second greatest commandment, he says, is to love your neighbor as yourself. You can't have one without the other. All right, you cannot claim to be truly loving your neighbor if you don't even understand what the love of God actually looks like and what love is really all about. And you also can't claim to love God and love Jesus if your life does not reflect that same love towards other people. Those two go hand in hand together. That's how they were meant to be. So he says, shoulder, bear one, another, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Verse three, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself, but let each one, oh, sorry, I must pause right there, verse three. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So he's going back to the negative part, back to the idea of living with the flesh. If you start telling yourself if it's all about just self-justifications, if it's all about living by the flesh, following the rules, doing all this stuff, and you start telling yourself that you're actually, you know, yeah, like, look at other people. I'm actually pretty, pretty good here. He says what happens is you end up deceiving yourself because in the reality, you're nothing. Because it's not about how you stack up to other people. It said, what is it about? Verse four, but let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. In other words, if the way you think you're going to be justified is by stacking up all your good works and saying, hey, I got you beat. I must be pretty good. You know, that's not how it works. That's not the way it's meant to be. St. Paul says, but let each one test his own work. In other words, 
Forget what your neighbor is doing and look at your own work. What are you doing? And then, compare, and then stack that up to what the law of Christ says. How are you doing? Not how are you doing compared to your neighbor. Not how are you doing compared to the other people in your gospel community. How are you doing when you stack up the work that you are doing and compare that to the law of Christ that says you shall love, the na- you love your neighbor as yourself? How are you doing? Because then his reason will be to boast in himself alone and not in his neighbor. It's not about that. And then verse 5, for each will have to bear his own load. Now, I know right away when you say, see that and you look at verse 2, well, didn't he just say to bear one another's burdens? Why is he saying we each have to bear our own load? All right. It's, I know it's kind of funny that they're worded so closely together, but it's actually referencing two different things. One is the idea of loving one, another person, a brother in Christ, a sister in Christ, by shouldering a burden that they might be going through, whether it be restoring them from sin or whether it be suffering that they're going through. And this, he's talking again about the idea of what are you, what are you, how are you valuing yourself and how are you marking yourself as good? If it's based on yourself and how you compare to others, guess what? In reality, one day, you have to be accountable for what, the work that you've done. And you are going to stand before the judgment throne of God. And when you're standing before the judgment throne of God, I'm sorry, you don't get to look up at him and say, well, you know, I have all this. And look at what Chris did. This is not so high. God's not going to look at you and be like, you know, you're right. You did do way more than Chris. Congratulations. You're now justified. is not how it works. You bear your own load, meaning you get judged based on what you have done compared to the law of Christ. You don't get to stack up and compare it to other people. So don't deceive yourselves, Paul says. In continues verse 6, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now this almost kind of a, I almost wanted to call it an outlier, but it really does fit into this idea of bearing one another's burdens, of loving your community. It's a specific reference to the idea of let the one who's taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. So first off, he's referring to the people who actually teach the word. Now, emphasizing the word meaning the gospel, the true gospel of Jesus Christ, first off. How do you know who he's talking about? Well, are they really preaching the word and teaching you the true gospel or are they teaching you something else? But for those who are teaching you the word, teaching you the gospel, he says, share all good things with that person. This is a command to everyone, basically saying, for those who are teaching you the word, share all good things with them. Now, this is one of those verses that some people use as, and I definitely think it can line up and, and refer to that, in terms of like why we maybe pay certain, why we pay pastors or why we have paid elders on staff. And I definitely think that that can be a part of it, of what sharing all good things mean, is financially supporting them, giving them, helping them with material needs in life, because life requires food, shelter, you know, all this important stuff in order to function day by day. So I definitely think that's part of it. 
But I really want to emphasize something that sharing all good things doesn't stop there. In fact, I would argue that if your only interaction with somebody who's teaching you the word is to sit there every time they are talking and just listen quietly and write in a check once a month, once every two weeks, whatever it might be, and shaking their hand and saying thank you every week, that if that's all you're doing, you're missing this as far as sharing all good things. Because sharing all good things, I believe, means is referencing your fellowship, your encouragement, your service. Sharing all good things references mean loving them truly as you would love yourself, giving them of yourself, not just your material stuff. That might be part of it. But it doesn't even have to be part of it, honestly. What does it mean for you to truly love that person? What do you have to give them? Don't hold out on it. Give it to them. Love on them. Just as you would want, just as they're loving on you by teaching you. Paul transfers verse 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. This is the second time Paul talks about deception in terms of people who live by the flesh. See, I think one of the re- realizations that Paul is saying when, you're, when he's writing this is saying, one of the problems with trying to live by your own flesh, by living by your own self-justification, trying to accomplish your salvation on your own, is you tend to end up deceiving yourselves a lot. You tend to start to think to yourself that one, you're either better than you think you are, or two, that God will somehow accept you because you're somehow better than other people. And you just kind of fall into this trap of deception. And in reality, what he's saying is, don't be fooled, don't be deceived, because God is, will not be mocked. In other words, God is not a fool. God's not going to be tricked. He's not going to just get caught up in, 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 in what you appear to be. God is going to look at who you truly are. And what were you truly doing things for? What was truly your heart behind the actions that you've done? Was it to make yourself feel better about who you were? Or was it because you were truly in step with the Holy Spirit and what he was commanding you to be? Who were you sowing for? If you were sowing for your own flesh, Paul says, from the flesh you will reap corruption. You will reap condemnation. There will be just an emptiness there. You're going to miss the boat. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Salvation. All good things coming from the Holy Spirit. So what it, from what heart, from what place are you doing the things that you're doing? Don't be fooled. Don't fool yourself and don't, fool, and don't think for a second you're going to fool God for why you do what you do. Verse 9, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. 
It says, let us not grow weary. In other words, let's persevere. We need to persevere in doing what is good because the reality is when you're doing what is good, when you're following, when you're loving people as the Holy Spirit leads you to love them, it can be tiresome. It requires a lot of you because loving people means you're giving all of yourself to them because we're supposed to love them as we love ourselves. He says, don't grow weary of it. Continue to persevere. In due season, we will reap. That doesn't mean, I want to emphasize, that doesn't mean that somehow in this earth today, you will somehow get and receive all this healthy stuff or wealth, like any kind of benefits here on earth. Because reality is that's not promised. And reality is if you're doing this right, it might be the opposite. It might require you to give up some of your wealth, a lot of your wealth, to truly do this right. It might require you to have a lot more stress in your life, a lot more busyness in your life that sometimes feels like it's just taken away from your health. But he says in due season we will reap if we do not give up. I believe and when he was talking about before about the, in the spirit, you will reap eternal life. He's talking not only will you reap eternal life for yourself, but you will start to see as you are truly loving people, if you are truly step following in the Holy Spirit's guidance of your life, you will start seeing eternal implications happen around you in other people's lives. One of the reasons that, why we at the Mount Church, why, why the elders of the Mount Church are so passionate about teaching and preaching people to be missional in their lives, to be truly going out and living this type of love for one another as well as for our neighbors. One of the reasons we're so passionate about that is because we've seen these eternal implications and nothing is more rewarding or filling than seeing that happen in other people's lives. There's nothing that I could possibly ever obtain here on earth and I've gotten my own fair share of nice things as far as from a worldly perspective here on this earth, but nothing compares to having seen eternal implications being rippling out because of my obedience to the Holy Spirit. There's no comparison. We're not preaching this stuff because we just want you to all fall in line like little robots and we want to take away from your fun. We're preaching this because we believe that this is truly better. Because we truly believe that this type of reaping, these type of eternal rewards that you will see in other people's lives is so much sweeter and so much greater than anything that this earth can bring you. So don't give up. He says, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This should especially be true in the way that we love one another here in this community, the way that we're always there for one another, the way that we're always seeking to spend time with one another. And if we have a community of faith that's all committed to this idea, then life will be a lot better because we're actually getting good things from other people as we're giving them good as well. A community, the community of Christ, the church of Christ is meant to be this cyclical thing that not only are you constantly giving of yourself, but you're also receiving of other people. That's why Christ uses the church to, to, to spread the word, not because because he, he wasn't designed to be doing it on our own. It wasn't meant for you to just go out and be a hero on your own.
So to summarize the second question as far as what does this text say or what does this text mean? Paul here is continuing a contrast, like I was saying, of living by the flesh, self-justification, and living by the Spirit. And what we see here in this passage, what we see Paul meaning by this passage is basically that the flesh, self-justification, will constantly lead to conceitedness, self-deceit, judgment of others. It'll lead to ourselves to thinking that we are better than we really are. Where even the good acts that we do, it's just because we want to feel better about ourselves. Whereas life by the Spirit leads to gentle correction, seeking restoration, helping one another to get back in line with the Holy Spirit. It leads to bearing one another's burdens, wanting to be shoulder to shoulder, helping one another. It leads to a desire to love others, especially those in the church. It leads to being part of a loving community. Ultimately, as I was reading this, I really saw two directions that ends up happening when you, look, when you compare what Paul is talking about when you're living for yourself, when you're living for uh, the flesh, when you're trying to just do all the good things so that you feel self-justified versus actually living in line with the Holy Spirit. One is going to lead you to a life of isolation. One is going to lead you to a life of self-deceit, self uh, just like I said, self, self making yourself feel better than everybody, other people or making you feel envious of other people. At least you being alone because it's all dependent on you and yourself. But a true life by the Spirit leads to community. It leads you to loving your community. It leads you to wanting to be part of a Christian community that is also going to love you in the same way, be just is full of the Holy Spirit, empowering them to love you just as you're loving them. Life by the Spirit results in us living in a loving community. And when I thought about how we naturally resist it, I really didn't have to think too hard on this one, to be honest, (laughs) because in our culture today, all we have is a bunch of people that are trying to live for themselves. And it doesn't just stop outside of the church. I wish it would. I wish it did. But really what happens is even amongst us Christians, instead of living by the Spirit, seeking community first, we end up living lives centered around ourselves. Centered around me. Personal accomplishments, private satisfactions, things that make me happy. Our thoughts are all about what I need or what I want. How am I looking? How do I feel? These are the thoughts that dominate our days, in and out. Me. What is it I need today? What is it I want to do today? What is it that I'm going after? What is it that I really want to accomplish? Our lives are full of these thoughts. And what I think ends up happening is because we're so focused on ourselves, it's very easy to end up in that trap Paul talks about where we end up deceiving ourselves for what we're even doing here in the first place. We end up deceiving ourselves, making ourselves feel like we are 
somehow still justifying ourselves because, hey, at least I'm doing the bare minimum. At least I am still going to church. At least I'm still, you know, not doing anything drastically bad. At least I'm still, you know, part of a weekly meeting, a gospel community. And we see ourselves for what our heart is really telling us as far as why we're doing those things. Instead of doing them because we are letting the Spirit live through us, empower us, compel us to live out of love, to live putting others first before ourselves. We do it because we just want to make sure we feel good about our place in everything. How we stack up in God's eyes. And the reason why it's a deception is because if all you're going to do is put yourself and be like, hey God, how do I stack up? You're comparing yourself to perfection, to holiness, to, 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 to an exact perfect standard. You, guess what? You don't stack up. Don't be fooled. And God will know our hearts. The beautiful thing, when we talk about Jesus being the hero of the story, is when we look at Jesus' life, his life was filled with nothing but focused on how he could love his community. Think about it, if anybody could just come to this world and just do it all on his own and not need to mess around with anybody, it was Jesus. But instead, what do we see Jesus doing? He comes to this earth, and the first, one of the first things he does in his ministry is call a group of disciples to be with him, to live with them, to teach them, to love on them, to share all that he could with them. He ate with them, he slept with them, he traveled with them, everything. Because he was all about loving the community. When he goes from town to town, he's healing people. He's bringing people back from the dead. He's accomplishing all these miracles, helping and loving people. He preaches the good news, he teaches them, he spends hours teaching them on, on mountains, hillsides, at the synagogues. He reveals to them the true way to the Father. And then ultimately, even in the way that he accomplishes our salvation, he pours out his love for us on the cross. Jesus isn't just asking us to love others as, as himself because he just wants to see us jump through hoops. He's doing it because he truly, believed, he truly showed and demonstrated to us that this is what life is for. This is what our life here on earth is meant to be. We're meant to be in this earth to love others as ourselves, putting them first so that in doing so, the Holy Spirit is able to work through us and make eternal miracles happen. Lives being saved giving them eternal life.
So as far as question five goes, how does this empower us? How does this help us to obey what this says? The love Jesus has for us demands loving others just as he loved us. We look at how Jesus lived his life. There's no way if you truly read the gospel that you can walk away thinking to yourself, oh, well, that's awesome. Jesus loves me. Now let me go live my life my way. But yet that's how we end up deceiving ourselves into doing all the time. We end up prioritizing ourselves more and more again rather than letting the love of Jesus Christ truly transform everything that our life is about. Which is what he came here to do. What the Holy Spirit wants to do. He sends out the Holy Spirit. One of the, I've been reading uh, with some of my guys at the GC, we've been reading through the Gospels and we just kind of wrapped up this last week. We were reading through the book of John. And I just love the ending of the last several chapters of John when Jesus not only, Jesus shows his love for his disciples in every sort of way. Every sort of way. He not only washes their feet, shows them through an act of service, the ultimate act of service, that he loves them. He encourages them, tells them that he will always be with them. He prays for them. You see his passion in his prayer for them, that he was going to send them out and that he prays that God would protect them, but, God that, but that God would also empower them. And then he also promises them the Holy Spirit. He promised them a continuing work. You just see this love of God, the love of Jesus Christ, pouring out for his disciples in such a powerful way in the book of John. And what I walk away with, with, with that feeling is like, man, like, how can we possibly think that all this love that Jesus poured out for us was really just so that we could have a life where we think we have a golden ticket in our pocket and now we can just do what we want? He sent us the Holy Spirit. God, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit so that we might be better off living this world, living for him, so our whole lives can be transformed. Our hearts can be transformed. We can die to the flesh as we talked about last week, and now our lives will be defined by the fruit of the Holy Spirit living out in our actions, in what we do. True faith in Jesus Christ can result in nothing else but loving other people as we love ourselves. True faith in Jesus Christ can result in nothing else but living by the Holy Spirit by demonstrating this type of love for people. A type of love that doesn't let us be silent when we see brothers and sisters in Christ lost. That doesn't let us be silent when we see brothers and sisters in our lives hurting. It doesn't allow us to just sit back and be content in our own little worlds while everyone else is content in their own little worlds. Even that is not acceptable to us if we're allowing the Holy Spirit to transform our lives. Because we are not designed to live lives of little pockets of isolation in a church. Our lives are meant to be integrated. The Holy Spirit unites a church together so that we can love one another in this way and that we can be empowered and love our community in this way. So I pray as you guys mull this stuff over that we would think about like, 
where's my heart at today? Where, where am I really at? Am I allowing myself to be deceived for what I do these things for? I pray that you would turn to Jesus Christ, you would turn to the cross, you would turn to his life and see the way that he loves us and ask, him, ask ourselves, are we letting the Holy Spirit transform our lives because of his love? What am I struggling to believe that's not transforming my life? Let's pray.